Part ten, chapter three of Indian Boyhood by Charles Eastman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Wild harvests. When our people lived in Minnesota, a good part of their natural subsistence was furnished by the wild rice, which grew abundantly in all of that region, around the shores and all over some of the innumerable lakes of the land of sky blue water was this wild cereal found indeed some of the watery fields in those days might be compared in extent and fruitfulness with the fields of wheat on minnesota's magnificent farms to-day the wild rice harvesters came in groups of fifteen to twenty families to a lake depending upon the size of the harvest some of the indians hunted buffalo upon the prairie at this season but there were more who preferred to go to the lakes to gather wild rice fish gather berries and hunt the deer there was an abundance of waterfowls among the grain and really no season of the year was happier than this the camping-ground was usually an attractive spot with shade and cool breezes off the water the people while they pitched their teepees upon the heights if possible for the sake of a good outlook actually lived in their canoes upon the placid waters the happiest of all perhaps were the young maidens who were all day long in their canoes in twos or threes and when tired of gathering the wild cereal would sit in the boats doing their needlework these maidens learned to imitate the calls of the different waterfowls as a sort of signal to the members of a group even the old women and the boys adopted signals so that while the population of the village was lost to sight in a thick field of wild rice a meeting could be arranged without calling any one by his or her own name it was a great convenience for those young men who sought opportunity to meet certain maidens for there were many canoe paths through the rice august is the harvest month there were many preliminary feasts of fish ducks and venison and offerings in honor of the water chief so that there might not be any drowning accident during the harvest the preparation consisted of a series of feasts and offerings for many days while women and men were making birch canoes for nearly every member of the family must be provided with one for this occasion the blueberry and huckleberry picking also preceded the rice gathering there were social events which enlivened the camp of the harvesters such as maidens feasts dances and a canoe regatta or two in which not only the men were participants but women and young girls as well on the appointed day all the canoes were carried to the shore and placed upon the water with prayer and propitiatory offerings each family took possession of the allotted field and tied all the grain in bundles of convenient size allowing it to stand for a few days then they again entered the lake assigning two persons to each canoe one manipulated the paddle while the foremost one gently drew the heads of each bundle toward him and gave it a few strokes with a light rod this caused the rice to fall into the bottom of the craft the field was traversed in this manner back and forth until finished this was the pleasantest and easiest part of the harvest toil the real work was when they prepared the rice for use first of all it must be made perfectly dry they would spread it upon buffalo robes and mats and sometimes upon layers of coarse swamp grass and dry it in the sun if the time was short they would make a scaffold and spread it upon a certain thickness of the green grass and afterward the rice under this a fire was made taking care that the grass did not catch fire 
when all the rice is gathered and dried the hulling begins a round hole is dug about two feet deep and the same in diameter then the rice is heated over a fireplace and emptied into the hole while it is hot a young man having washed his feet and put on a new pair of moccasins treads upon it until all is hulled the women then pour it upon a robe and begin to shake it so that the chaff will be separated by the wind some of the rice is browned before being hulled during the hulling time there were prizes offered to the young men who can hull quickest and best there were sometimes from twenty to fifty youths dancing with their feet in these holes pretty moccasins were brought by shy maidens to the youths of their choice asking them to hull rice there were daily entertainments which deserved some such name as hulling bee at any rate we all enjoyed them hugely the girls brought with them plenty of good things to eat when all the rice was preparing for the table the matter of storing it must be determined caches were dug by each family in a concealed spot and carefully lined with dry grass and bark here they left their surplus store for a time of need our people were very ingenious in covering up all traces of the hidden food a common trick was to build a fire on top of the mound as much of the rice as could be carried conveniently was packed in par fleshes or cases made of rawhide and brought back with us to our village after all the wild indians could not be justly termed improvident when their manner of life is taken into consideration they let nothing go to waste and labored incessantly during the summer and fall to lay up provision for the inclement season berries of all kinds were industriously gathered and dried in the sun even the wild cherries were pounded up stones and all made into small cakes and dried for use in soups and for mixing with the pounded jerked meat and fat to form a much prized indian delicacy out on the prairie in july and august the women were wont to dig teepsinna with sharpened sticks and many a bagful was dried and put away this teepsinna is the root of a certain plant growing mostly upon high sandy soil it is starchy but solid with a sweetish taste and is very fattening the fully grown teepsinna is two or three inches long and has a dark brown bark not unlike the bark of a young tree it can be eaten raw or stewed and is always kept in a dried state except when it is first dug there was another root that our people gathered in small quantities it is a wild sweet potato found in bottom land or river beds the primitive housekeeper exerted herself much to secure a variety of appetizing dishes she even robbed the field mouse and the muskrat to accomplish her end the tiny mouse gathers for her winter use several excellent kinds of food among these is a wild bean which equals in flavor any domestic bean that i have ever tasted her storehouse is usually under a peculiar mound which the untrained eye would be unable to distinguish from an ant-hill there are many pockets underneath into which she industriously gathers the harvest of the summer she is fortunate if the quick eye of a native woman does not detect her hiding-place about the month of september while travelling over the prairie a woman is occasionally observed to halt suddenly and waltz around a suspected mound finally the pressure of her heel causes a place to give way and she settles contentedly down to rob the poor mouse of the fruits of her labour 
the different kinds of beans are put away in different pockets but it is the umenacha she wants the field mouse loves this savory vegetable for she always gathers it more than any other there is also some of the white star-like manakaka the root of the wild lily this is a good medicine and good to eat when our people were gathering the wild rice they always watched for another plant that grows in the muddy bottom of lakes and ponds it is a white bulb about the size of an ordinary onion this is stored away by the muskrats in their houses by the waterside and there is often a bushel or more of the psinchincha to be found within it seemed as if everybody was good to the wild indian at least we thought so then i have referred to the opportunities for courting upon the wild rice fields indian courtship is very peculiar in many respects but when you study their daily life you will see the philosophy of their etiquette of love-making there was no parlor courtship the life was largely out of doors which was very favorable to the young men in a nomadic life where the female members of the family have entire control of domestic affairs the work is divided among them all very often the bringing of the wood and water devolves upon the young maids and the spring or the woods become the battleground of love's warfare the nearest water may be some distance from the camp which is all the better sometimes too there is no wood to be had and in that case one would see the young women scattered all over the prairie gathering buffalo chips for fuel this is the way the red men go about to induce the aboriginal maids to listen to their suit as soon as the youth has returned from the warpath or the chase he puts on his porcupine quill embroidered moccasins and leggings and folds his best robe about him he brushes his long glossy hair with a brush made from the tail of the porcupine perfumes it with scented grass or leaves then arranges it in two plates with an otter skin or some other ornament if he is a warrior he adds an eagle feather or two if he chooses to ride he takes his best pony he jumps upon its bare back simply throwing a part of his robe under him to serve as a saddle and holding the end of a lariat tied about the animal's neck he guides him altogether by the motions of his body these wily ponies seem to enter into the spirit of the occasion and very often capture the eyes of the maid by their graceful movements in perfect obedience to their master the general custom is for the young men to pull their robes over their heads leaving only a slit to look through sometimes the same is done by the maiden especially in public courtship he approaches the girl while she is coming from the spring he takes up his position directly in her path if she is in a hurry or does not care to stop she goes around him but if she is willing to stop and listen she puts down on the ground the vessel of water she is carrying very often at the first meeting the maiden does not know who her lover is he does not introduce himself immediately but waits until a second meeting sometimes she does not see his face at all and then she will try to find out who he is and what he looks like before they meet again if he is not a desirable suitor she will go on with her chaperone and end the affair there there are times when maidens go in twos and then there must be two young men to meet them there is some courtship in the night-time either in the early part of the evening on the outskirts of dances and other public affairs or after everybody is supposed to be asleep this is the secret courtship 
the youth may pull up the tent pins just back of his sweetheart and speak with her during the night he must be a smart young man to do that undetected for the grandmother her chaperone is usually all ears elopements are common there are many reasons for a girl or a youth to defer their wedding it may be from personal pride of one or both the well-born are married publicly and many things are given away in their honour the maiden may desire to attend a certain number of maidens feasts before marrying the youth may be poor or he may wish to achieve another honour before surrendering to a woman sometimes a youth is so infatuated with a maiden that he will follow her to any part of the country even after their respective bands have separated for the season i knew of one such case pata tanka had courted a distant relative of my uncle for a long time there seemed to be some objection to him on the part of the girl's parents although the girl herself was willing the large camp had been broken up for the fall hunt and my uncle's band went one way while the young man's family went in the other direction after three days of travelling we came to a good hunting ground and made camp one evening somebody saw the young man he had been following his sweetheart and sleeping out of doors all that time although the nights were already frosty and cold he met her every day in secret and she brought him food but he would not come near the teepee finally her people yielded and she went back with him to his band when we lived our natural life there was much singing of war songs medicine hunting and love songs sometimes there were few words or none but everything was understood by the inflection from this i have often thought that there must be a language of dumb beasts the crude musical instrument of the sioux the flute was made to appeal to the susceptible ears of the maidens late into the night there comes to me now the picture of two young men with their robes over their heads and only a portion of the handmade and carved chotanka the flute protruding from its folds i can see all the maidens slyly turn their heads to listen now i hear one of the youths begin to sing a plaintive serenade as in days gone by hey yay hey yay ah hey hey listen you will hear of him maiden you will hear of him listen he will shortly go wasula feels that she must come out but she has no good excuse so she stirs up the embers of the fire and causes an unnecessary smoke in the teepee then she has an excuse to come out and fix up the tent flaps she takes a long time to adjust these pointed ears of the teepee with their long poles for the wind seems to be unsettled finally chotanka ceases to be heard in a moment a young man appears ghost-like at the maiden's side so it is you is it she asks is your grandmother in he inquires what a brave man you are to fear an old woman we are free the country is wide we can go away and come back when the storm is over ho oh, he replies it is not that i fear her or the consequences of an elopement i fear nothing except that we may be separated the girl goes into the lodge for a moment then slips out once more 
now she exclaims to the wood or the prairie i am yours they disappear in the darkness end of part ten chapter three